0: Welcome to the Word of Life Bible Study Podcast, a work of the Southwest Church of Christ in Austin, Texas. We invite you to open your Bibles and follow along with us as we study God's Word together. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Word of Life Bible Study Podcast, a work of the Southwest Church of Christ in Austin, Texas. My name is Cody Westbrook, and I'm the preacher for the congregation. As we turn our attention to God's Word today, we are looking at Nehemiah chapter 9 and Nehemiah chapter 10. In our last episode, we looked at Nehemiah chapter 8 under the heading of Restoration. Again, be mindful of the fact that we're studying through the book of Nehemiah for the purpose of trying to learn some lessons that will help us in helping the church to be strengthened and to move forward in her work as we come out of a pandemic and a number of issues that have arisen in our country and in our world over the last several months. Now in the book of Nehemiah, the walls of Jerusalem have been uh, completed, and Nehemiah has turned his attention then to the spiritual renewal of the people. In Nehemiah chapter 8, the people demanded a reading of God's Word, and so Nehemiah and Ezra and the priests and the scribes, they read and they explained the meaning of God's Word. And now in Nehemiah chapter 9, we're going to see some further application of what it was that they learned. I want you to think for a moment about rebuilding a dilapidated structure. If you're going to rebuild a dilapidated structure, you have to start fresh. You have to tear down the old in order to rebuild the new. In Nehemiah's day, God's people knew that they needed to rebuild. The reading of the law in chapter 8 had first resulted in feasting because the people realized that they had not kept the Feast of Booths for some time. But now in chapter 9, it turns to fasting. And the reason is because God's Word had made it clear to them that repentance was needed in their life. In other words, they needed to rebuild their lives. Now, in chapters 9 and 10 of Nehemiah, we learn two very important points about repentance, and that is, number one, its motive, and number two, its fruit. Now, when we talk about repentance, first of all, we need to... Define the word, and the word has to do with a change of mind that leads to a change of action. Repentance is necessary if a person is going to be pleasing to God. Jesus said that uh, we all must repent, Luke 13, verse 3. Peter described and commanded repentance in Acts chapter 3 and verse number 19. Acts 2 and verse number 38 says, "'Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins.'" It is impossible to be pleasing to God without repentance. But what is repentance exactly? What does it look like? And what is its motive? That's the study that we're engaging in today. I want you to notice with me, beginning in Nehemiah chapter 9, as Nehemiah describes the motive of repentance, he says, first of all, the motive of repentance is the goodness of God. I want you to look in this I want you to look in this uh, exhortation that is found in Nehemiah chapter 9 at what words are said about God. First of all, in Nehemiah 9, verse 6 through 15, God is described as our Creator and as our Savior. As our Creator and as our Savior. First of all, God is powerful. God is powerful. The text says in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 5, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Listen to this. You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven and the heaven of heavens with all their hosts. The earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. The hosts of the heavens worship you. You see, the text describes God as being powerful, and then it describes it in three ways. The first of which is that God is the Creator. He created the universe, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 5 and 6. But that's not all. He tells us that, that God, in His power, created Israel in verse 7 and following. He says, "...you are the Lord God who chose Abraham." and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldees, and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you, and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Girgashites, to give it to his descendants. And you have performed your words, for you are righteous. How do we see God's power? We see God's power in his creation of the material world. We see God's power in his creation of the nation of Israel from the seed of Abraham. But third, we see God's power in that he saved Israel and gave them direction. Pick back up in verse number 9. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, he says, and heard their cry by the Red Sea. You showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and against all his servants and against all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted proudly, acted proudly against them. So you made a name for yourself as it is this day. You divided the sea uh, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and their persecutors you threw into the deep as a stone into the mighty water. Moreover, you led them by day with a cloudy pillar and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the road which they should travel. He then goes on to describe the fact that God came down from Mount Sinai, that God spoke with them, that God gave them laws and ordinances and statutes and commandments that were right and just and true. He made known to them the Sabbath. He made known to them all precepts and statutes by the hand of Moses. And then in verse 15, he says, "'You gave them bread.'" You see, God provided for them. He saved Israel out of Egyptian captivity. He saved them from Pharaoh. He provided for their spiritual needs, and He provided for their physical needs. God was their creator and their savior. God is powerful, and that is seen in the fact that He created the universe, that He created the nation of Israel, that He saved Israel, that He gave them direction. But that's not all. You see, in verse 16 through 25, the text will tell us that God was also generous and patient with Israel. Beginning in verse 16, the Bible tells us that Israel turned their back on God. They and our fathers, Nehemiah 9:16, acted proudly and hardened their necks and did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey and they were not mindful of your wonders." He will tell us about how they turned their back on God, about how they tried to replace God with idolatry, and about how they refused to obey God over and over and over again. But what did God do in the midst of all of this? The Bible will tell us that God did not forsake them, that God continued to direct them, that God continued to sustain them, and that God continued to fight for them. Look at verse number 20. uh, Verse number 19, rather. Even when they made a calf for themselves, verse uh, number 18, verse 19, yet in your manifold mercies you did not forsake them in the wilderness. You gave them your good spirit to instruct them, verse 20, and did not withhold your manna from their mouth, and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them, verse 21, in the wilderness. They lacked nothing, their clothes did not wear out, their feet did not swell. You gave them kingdoms and nations, um, you multiplied their children, verse 23. The people went into the land of Canaan and possessed it, verse number 24. You gave the Canaanites into their hands, verse number 24. They ate and they filled, they were filled and they grew fat, and they delighted themselves in your great goodness. Stop for just a moment and consider the sad contrast between the people and between their God. What all had God done for the people? God made them a nation? God redeemed them from Egypt. God provided for them spiritually. God provided for them physically. God fulfilled promises to their father Abraham by giving them the land of Canaan. He helped them to win as they conquested through that land. He did not forsake them. He continued to sustain them and fight for them and to direct them. And yet in all of this, they turned their back on him. They refused to obey him, and they sought to replace him with idolatry. How did God react to all of this? Well, the answer is that God reacted as a faithful father. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11 is a wonderful context to make note of, as it has uh, much to say about God as a faithful father. Listen to what the Hebrews writer says in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 5 he says and you have forgotten the exhortation which which speaks to you as sons my son do not despise the chastening of the lord nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him for whom the father loves he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives if you endure chastening god deals with you as sons for what son is there whom a father does not chasten but if you were without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have, uh, had husband, uh, ha- have had human fathers rather, who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall not we much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us, as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness." Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. What is the point of the Hebrews writer in Hebrews 12, verse 5 through 11? The point is that chastening, that discipline, that direction and correction and instruction from a father is profitable and good for a son and god as a faithful and loving father has indeed chastened and directed and corrected his people because he is a loving and faithful father back to nehemiah chapter 9 verse 26 through 31 although god was good to israel as we read in the previous context nevertheless nehemiah 9:26 they were disobedient and they rebelled against you and they cast your law behind their backs and they killed your prophets who testified against them, to turn them to yourself, and they worked great provocations. Listen to this. Therefore you deliver them into the hand of their enemies who oppressed them. And in the time of their trouble, when they cried to you, you heard from heaven, and according to your abundant mercies, you gave them deliverers who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest again, they did evil again. And uh, so you left them in the hand of their enemies. They returned and cried out to you, and you heard, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies and testified against them that you might bring them back to your law. Yet they acted proudly and did not heed your commandments, but they sinned against your judgments. He goes on and he says in verse number 30 and 31, Yet for many years you had patience with them. You testified against them by your spirit and your prophets, yet they would not listen. Therefore you gave them into the hands of the people of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them, for you are, God, gracious and merciful. What is the point that is being made in Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 26 and following? The point is that as a faithful father, God warned Israel and disciplined Israel over and again He allowed their enemies to overrun them as a punishment. And yet, whenever they cried out for forgiveness and for grace and for mercy, God was ready to hear. And in everything, God remained gracious and merciful to them. And in verse 32 through 37, The uh, context will elaborate on this more by telling us that he was always just and fair in his dealings with Israel, but Israel was unjust and unfair in their dealings with him. Nehemiah says, Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and awesome God who keeps covenant and mercy, do not let all the trouble seem small to you that has come upon us, our kings and our princes, our priests and our prophets, our fathers and on all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until this day. However, you are just in all that has befallen us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. As Nehemiah thinks about God and about his goodness, again, we're talking about the motive of repentance here being the goodness of God Nehemiah thinks back upon the calamity that had befallen them. About the fact that the northern kingdom had gone into Assyria. The southern kingdom had seen Jerusalem and the temple and the walls of the city destroyed and had been carried away to Babylon for 70 years. They had endured great punishment, and yet Nehemiah says, "'God, you were fair in this.'" "'From the king of the nation of Israel to the father of the house of all Israel.'" Uh, From the father of every house, all Israel was guilty of rejecting God and his will. So God had punished them for their sin, and he was just in doing so. God had been faithful to them, but they had been unfaithful to him. And it is the realization of this fact that finally had broken their hearts and brought them to repentance. And that is the point that Nehemiah is driving at, beginning in verse 6 and going down through where we are now in verse number 37. Nehemiah reflects upon the power of God, he reflects upon the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God over and over again throughout the generations. And it brings him to the point, it brings the people to the point where they recognize that for generation after generation, they had turned their backs on the faithful and true Creator, and so therefore they had been punished. They realized this fact, and it absolutely broke their hearts. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse number 10, the Apostle Paul will assign a label to this brokenheartedness, and that label is called godly sorrow. Paul says it's godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Not the sorrow of the world, he says, but godly sorrow, which produces change. The difference is being sorry because you got caught versus being sorry because you actually did something wrong. And when we're sorry because we realize that we actually did something wrong, then we are heartbroken and motivated to right that wrong and to change our behavior. The motive of repentance. The goodness of God. We think back upon how good our God has been and continues to be toward us. And that goodness of God seen throughout the days and the weeks and the months and the years as we reflect upon that goodness in contrast with how we live and how we behave. If we find that we have lived in a way that is insulting to the goodness and faithfulness of our God, then that ought to break our hearts and cause us to want to do better. But what does doing better look like? Let's talk about now the fruit of repentance. Nehemiah 9, verse 38 and following. The Bible says, because of all of this, we make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders, our priests, uh, our, our leaders and our Levites and our priests, and seal it. And then we go on into chapter ten. You see, repentance is more than just a change of heart. It is a change of heart that leads to a change of action. So what's happening now is in the book of Nehemiah that all of the people are they're they're making a covenant with God to be faithful to him they are making a covenant with God to be faithful to him unlike what had happened in years before that led to captivity and so now in chapter 10 we have the names of the people of the men of the leaders of the families who write this covenant and who sign their name to it who pledge to be faithful to God a couple of things that stand out in this chapter number one They pledged to follow God's will in everything. Look at Nehemiah 10, verse 29. These joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do, listen to this, all the commandments of the Lord our God and His ordinances and His statutes. Notice the language, all of the commandments of the Lord our God. What they're saying is, we're not going to pick and choose and follow and obey only those things which are good and pleasant. We're going to obey every single thing that your word says. That means the things that are easy and the things that are hard. We're talking about full and total obedience. Now look at verse 30 and 31. They're saying, we're going to follow your will in everything, but now in verse 30 and 31, they say, we're going to sever our ties with the world. We would not, verse 30, give our daughters as wives to the people of the land or take daughters for our sons. If the peoples of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we would forego the seventh year's produce and the exacting of every debt. Now, they're talking about laws that God had issued many, many years before in the law of Moses, which their forefathers had neglected and ignored for decades. Things like honoring the Sabbath day. Things like honoring the Sabbath year. Things like making sure that there's no intermarriage between the children of Israel and the uh, Canaanite, the Gentiles uh, of the land. They say, we're going to sever ties with them and we are going to follow your will. But then they say, we're going to support your work. Nehemiah chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. Let's read through the end of the chapter very quickly. Also we made ordinances for ourselves to exact from ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of God, for the show bread, for the regular grain offering, for the regular burnt offering of the Sabbaths, the new moons, the set feasts, the holy things, the sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel and all the work of the house of our God. We cast lots among the people, the Levites and the people, for bringing the wood offering into the house of our God according to our fathers' houses at the appointed times year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law, and we made ordinances to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of the trees year by year to the house of the Lord, to bring the firstborn of our sons and our cattle as it is written in the law the firstborn of our herds and our flocks the house of our to the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of our God. To bring the first fruits of our dough, our offerings, the fruit from all kinds of trees, the new wine, the oil to the priest, to the storerooms of the house of our God, to bring the tithes of our land to the Levites, for the Levites should receive the tithes in all our farming communities. And the priest, the descendant of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes, and the Levites shall bring up a tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the rooms of the storehouse, for the children of Israel, and the children of Levi shall bring the offering of the grain, of the new wine, of the oil, of the store to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are, where the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers are, and we will not neglect, he says, the house of our God. Now I want you to notice, there's a lot here, but when you look at it from a uh, general perspective, uh, from a bird's eye view, it really makes a powerful point. What these verses have done is they have recorded for us, again, commandments of the law of Moses. Notice the things that are here. We're going to pay a temple tax, verse number 32. We're going to uh, make sure that we bring of the first fruits every year, verse 35 and following. The firstborn of our sons and our cattle. We're going to bring the first fruits of our dough. We're going to offer. We're going to give tithes. We're going to make sure that all of these things are done, and part of the reason is because this is how the law of Moses uh, said that the priests and the Levites who saw to the matters pertaining to God and the house of God were provided for. The people pledged themselves and says, "We're going to do exact. We're going to do these things exactly as the law says." This is active involvement in the Lord's work. They say, we're not going to forsake the house of God. Verse number 39, God's work now is their priority. It hadn't been for so very long. Now again, look what we've seen. We've seen the motive of repentance being the goodness of God, and we've seen the fruit of repentance, which is seen in complete and total obedience to the will of God, in severing our ties with the world, and in being actively involved in the work of God. That dear friends, is a perfect definition of the fruit of repentance. Now, as we think about our own lives, we have to stop and ask ourselves if we are following God's will in everything, if we've severed our ties with the world to live lives of holiness, and if we're actively involved in supporting and promoting the work of God, if God's work really is our priority, and if not, why not? That's the end of our study. We thank you for listening to this episode of the Word of Life Bible Study Podcast. We hope that you will subscribe and continue to study God's Word with us in the future. We hope that you will tell your friends and your neighbors and your family members about our podcast. And we invite you to visit our website uh, from time to time where you can find articles and sermons and other resources that will help you in your study of God's Word. Thank you for taking the time to listen and to study with us. We hope that you'll, again, Uh, Listen to us, uh, Lord willing, in the future as we continue to open up God's Word and study it together. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Word of Life Bible Study Podcast. Please visit our website at swcofc.org for more information about the Southwest Church of Christ. And if you're in the Austin area, please come and visit with us. Thank you for listening, and please join us again as we open up our Bibles and study more of the wonderful Word of Life.